Please pray with me. Father in heaven, I ask this morning very simply that you would let us see your son. Open our eyes to see the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Amen. I love this passage in John. It's strange and playful and intimate. It would never have shown up in a modern history textbook. What does this weird little interchange add to the story? It's so personal, though. These two disciples who see Jesus and hear John's words and follow him in this strange little interchange, what are you looking for? Where are you staying? Come, you'll see. Makes you wonder why John even recorded it. Because it doesn't move the story forward. And it doesn't seem on the surface to give us new information about Jesus. The early church saw in this the story of John the Apostle's conversion. You know, two disciples and only one gets named. Who's the other? Throughout the Gospel of John, there is this disciple who's mentioned a number of times, but never named. And the early church, I think, rightly understood that that's the author himself but he's just too humble to put his own name. So then you say, why is this story included? It's John's conversion story. This is the moment when John began to follow Jesus. If you wonder why later when he's at his boat with his brother and Jesus says, follow me, and he follows so without hesitation, it's because this moment has already occurred. It's John's conversion story. But it's more than that, because John's not writing for himself, and he's certainly not writing to talk about himself. At the end of his gospel, he actually says to his readers, these things were written for you. In other words, why does John tell this little story? It's for us. It's almost as if he's inviting us into the story, letting us be one of the participants in this strange little interchange. Jesus' question is almost funny. What are you looking for? You can imagine John and Andrew who are like following behind him on the road going, isn't it obvious? We're following you. But he says, what are you looking for? And the question needs to be asked. In fact, I think it needs to be asked for us because each of us is seeking something. We're creatures who never stop seeking something. We're hungry creatures. I once gave a graduation address based on this premise, that humans are the only creatures that if you give them food and shelter and their pack around them, will still say, I'm missing something. I'm dissatisfied. We're hungry creatures, always looking for something. And so Jesus needed to ask Andrew and John, what is it that you hope to get out of this? What are you looking for? He needs to ask us that, does he not? If he were here and said to you, what are you looking for? What are you hoping to get out of this?
What do you want? Some days we might just simply say a little peace and quiet. Just slow life down for a moment. There's other moments where we might say, I want a friend. And there's other moments where we might say, I want someone to tell me that I matter. There's a host of things that we can be seeking at any moment. And Jesus needs to ask this question of us, just as he needed to ask it of Andrew and John. Remember, John wrote this for his readers, not for himself. And it's almost like he's inviting them into his own conversion so we can hear Jesus saying to us, what are you looking for? What do you want? With all that haste and busyness in your life, with all that desperate attempt to get your own way, what are you trying to accomplish? What do you desire? I love that this story begins with Jesus simply walking by. It's so mundane. But it made me think about all the times Jesus has walked by in each of our lives. Where we've known it was him present, close to us. And yet we missed it and turned away, distracted, busy, other things to worry about. Jesus is simply walking by. This is how the story begins. He walks by, they turn, they follow. He asks them, what are you looking for? And their response, so quizzical, where are you staying? Where are you going? Can we stay with you? You can hear what they're asking behind the words. And so he offers an invitation. Come, you'll see. He doesn't tell them where he's going. He just simply says, come with me. Come with me. He woos and invites them to stay with him. He calls for trust, in other words. He doesn't say, this is where we will go together. And he doesn't say, this is where you will end up. He just simply says to them, come, you'll see. Does that not feel familiar? The come and you will see. And you say, Lord, I want to know where the destination is, where we'll end up. And he says, stay with me and you'll see. You don't get to know that answer yet. He calls for trust. He calls them to walk with him even when they cannot see. Again, John is inviting us to see ourselves in this story. There's times when we want to follow but we think that we need to do something first. We've got to prove ourselves to Jesus first. We've got to be good enough for him. Do you notice that Jesus didn't say that to John or Andrew? He just said, come with me. There's times we want to follow, but we're scared to follow because we don't know where it's going. And do you notice what he says? Just come, come with me. He invites us into that trust. This is the point of that question. That question he asks, what are you seeking? Because so frequently what we need to know is where this whole thing goes. And the point that Jesus is making with these two men is it doesn't matter as much where it goes as it does who you go with. You see the point here. That it's who we are with and not where he is taking us that should drive this whole thing. 
that it's being with Jesus that matters. It's the point of their question. They get it. Where are you staying? They want to know where he is. And it's his invitation behind that. Come with me and we'll discover together. Jesus asked gently without rebuke, what do you want to get out of this? What are you looking for? What would satisfy you? And Andrew in John's response reveals the point of the whole thing, that what I want is wherever you are. This is what matters. It's not the what, but the who that we should seek that matters. I find it intriguing that the Bible begins with God seeking us. You remember Genesis? Adam and Eve hiding in the garden in shame. And it begins with God seeking us. They were hiding just as we oftentimes hide. We oftentimes hide from God. We hide from one another. We even hide from ourselves, covering up the things that we do not want to see and do not want to know and are ashamed of with all of this restless seeking of a thousand other things, masking over our fragility, masking over our brokenness with incessant activity and distraction, hiding from ourselves, from one another, from God, so oftentimes frightened of God distrusting him, disbelieving him. And yet God never stops his seeking. He never stops coming and calling people, saying, come with me, come with me and see. Looking for them in their hiding places and saying, would you seek me in return? And the testimony of the scriptures is that everyone who seeks him in return says, you know what I've discovered? that his love is better than life itself. Over and over, this is the testimony we've heard from those who've dared to take him at his word and to seek in return. God's seeking reaches a climactic moment. The life of Jesus, who explicitly said, I came to seek and to save the lost. Coming, seeking all those who are hiding from God, seeking those who are broken, Jesus, the one who walks by each of us and calls us to stop hiding and seek him in return, asking each of us, what is it that you're looking for? What do you hope to get out of this? What's broken inside that you're trying to fix? And then he asks a second question. All those things you're looking for, Would you look for me instead? Would you seek me instead? I love that the story begins with John's testimony. You know, he's the one who points out Jesus to Andrew, John the Baptist's testimony. He's the one who points out Jesus to Andrew and John the Apostle. And there are John the Baptists in all of our lives. People who say to us, You are going in the wrong direction. Look at Jesus. Seek him. He's worth looking for. I love that. People who testify to us. I love that we're actually able to be that sort of voice to people in our family. Friends who are seeking all the wrong things. 
hiding in all the wrong places. We can be like John, telling disciples, people who look up to us. We can be like Andrew, going to find a brother first. We can be like Philip. We didn't read about him in this gospel lesson, but it's the next story that comes. Jesus seeks Philip and Philip seeks Nathaniel, going to find a friend. I love that the story includes the fact that we're not on our own, that God sends people to us. I love that we can be included in this. The things that we seek are all ways of dealing with the fallenness of the world. This is the sort of rock-bottom reality of our incessant hunger. Sin, the propensity to devote ourselves to ourselves, to be bent inwards upon ourselves. Sin produces death and fear and guilt and shame. It produces fragility, frustration, futility in life. We all feel its work. We feel its effects day in and day out. We feel all that. And so what do we do? We seek things that promise to answer. Things that seem to promise life. Same things that seem to promise efficiency and power and strength and security. Things that seem to promise pleasure and self-satisfaction and honor. Things that promise but never ultimately deliver. This is why the ultra-wealthy aren't happy, right? It never delivers. We're all collectively like the child, desperate for the particular toy on Christmas, and when they receive it, two days later when the luster has worn off, just as dissatisfied as before. All these things that we seek promise, and yet they don't deliver. And all the while... The John the Baptists, the Andrews, the, the Phillips, these people in our life are crying out to us, hinting, saying, behold the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God, seek Him instead. You see, they're crying this out to us, Jesus speaking through them, because our Lord the lamb does not merely deal with the symptoms of our brokenness. This is what all these things that we seek are trying to do, mask over and deal with the symptoms of our brokenness. But he does much more than that. He deals with the root itself. He actually takes away sin. He takes away the sin that produces the death and fear and guilt and fragility and futility. He takes that away. Do you remember John's words? Behold the Lamb of God who what? Takes away the sin of the world. He pulls that plant up by the roots, the thing that brings that destruction and futility and frustration to our lives. He pulls it up, not merely shielding us with the, from the consequences. He does that. He shields us from the consequences of guilt and shame by taking the punishment for us. Isaiah 53, the lamb led to the slaughter. Our iniquities laid on him. He shields us from the consequences. He shields us from the consequence of death like the Passover lamb. Blood painted on the doorways that everyone who enters underneath is shielded and protected from death itself. He does that. But he takes away the sin itself. 
and not just the consequences. In other words, this lamb who was slain is a conqueror. He's a conqueror who stands majestic, who is not too powerless to deal with the sin itself. Not just its effects and its guilt, but capable of eradicating the sin itself. This is what John declared. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Eradicates it. Takes it away. This is what John the Apostle is inviting us to hear in this story. And he's inviting us to wrestle with the reality that that same Lamb would take away sin for us. Not just shield from the consequences, but take away sin. Many of you, like me, may hear that and go, I've tried to deal with my sin. To no avail. I'm no good at it. And even in saying it, like me, you may correct yourself and go, wait, 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 it's the lamb who takes away sin. No wonder I've been unsuccessful. But then many of you may say, but, but I've tried to let the lamb take away my sin. I've asked him and begged him to take away my sin. And it seems like nothing is occurring. There are dangers in highlighting a verse like this. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There's the danger in turning it into some superficial sentiment. The sort of you hear it and go, oh, it's all good now. Everything will be fine. He takes it all away a glib, superficial sentiment. There's danger in that. There's also danger in despair and in resignation and in cynicism because we say the Bible testifies that he takes away sin and I've tried my whole life long and look where I still am. There's danger in both of these positions. The truth is actually slower and harder than those who are superficially happy with this news might realize. It's more painful, and the struggle is deeper, and it takes longer. But the truth is more real than those who've grown resigned and cynical realize. He actually does what he says he will do. His promises can be trusted. The Lamb of God takes away sin. This is the declaration, almost the first declaration that John opens his gospel with. The Lamb of God takes away sin. My hope this morning, more than anything else, is very simply that you confront this fact. And in confronting this, you would say, he is worth seeking if this is actually true. His work is slower than we might want. He is patient. He brings tendencies to devote ourselves to ourselves very slowly to the surface. And in bringing those tendencies to the surface, he burns them away. He begins with the outer sins that we notice, the things that we know about ourselves. And he, only after dealing with those things, moves into the deep recesses of the heart, the places where we are utterly self-centered and don't even know it. His work is slow and patient. Years, decades, maybe centuries it takes. It will not be finished until we see him face to face. John the Apostle said this in his letter. 
that when we see him, we will be like him. It will not be finished until then. He works that patiently and that slowly with us. I'm convinced that this patience in this slowness is because if he corrected it all in one instance, we would be undone. Have you ever met somebody who told you everything that was wrong with you all up front? He works patiently and slowly, one thing at a time, tolerating things that should not be tolerated, shielding us in his mercy, tolerating things that people around us go, why has God not fixed that in you yet? And God says, because I'm more patient than you. And I work slower. Because I don't want to undo my creatures in this process. I don't want to destroy them along the way. But don't interpret his patience as the fact that he does not do what he says he will do. Very slowly and steadily over the years. He pulls from us those weeds that need to be pulled, purifying and cleansing so that we become more and more like him. The lamb doesn't do this against our will. And this is where I want to end. He doesn't work upon us against our will. Remember what he said to James, I mean, excuse me, to John and to Andrew? Come and see. He does not work upon those who are not willing to put their lives in his hands and say, your will be done. Do with me as you wish. He doesn't work on those who won't submit to them. He uses people who don't submit to him. Think Pharaoh, but that's not usually a pleasant using. The people that he purifies and cleanses, who, the people that he lifts the sin away from, are those who are willing to trust him. Those who are willing to follow when he does not say where we are going, but just simply says, come and see. If he told us where we are going, in other words, if he told you or me, we're going to the place where I eradicate that in you. Most of us would say, no, I like that. I don't want to go. But he says, come and see. And for those who are willing to step in faith and trust him, Slowly, over time, he eradicates those things that are destroying us. Those things that are ruining what is good and beautiful and lively in our lives. Eliminating those things that destroy our heart and soul, that harden us, that make it impossible to love. Breaking walls and burning away the trash in the depths of our hearts. And so where does that leave us? Very simply, I believe, with what John is calling us to in this very passage. I began with this weird question, why does he record something that no historian would think is significant? And I think the point is clear. Jesus declared the Lamb of God who takes away sin. And then John the Apostle recounting his invitation, come with me. Come and see. Come and see where I will take you. So my call to you this morning is do not stop seeking. Do not stop seeking. Follow the Lamb wherever He leads and trust Him that He will shield you 
protect you and bring you life. Amen.